Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 232nd episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most admired veterans of the stage and screen, Judith Light. Perhaps best known as Angela Bauer on Who's the Boss, a primetime hit on ABC through much of the 80s and into the early 90s, she's also a two-time daytime Emmy winner for One Life to Live in 1980 and 1981, a two-time Tony winner for Other Desert Cities in 2012, and the Assembled Parties in 2013, and a four-time Primetime Emmy nominee for ABC's Ugly Betty in 2007, for Amazon's Transparent in 2016 and 2017, and, as of last month, for FX's The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story, in the category of Best Supporting Actress in a Limited Series or TV Movie. That comes thanks to a brief but stunning turn on Ryan Murphy's acclaimed limited series as Marilyn Miglin, the fragrance entrepreneur and TV saleswoman whose husband Lee was, like Versace, a victim of serial killer Andrew Cunanan. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 69-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how her talent and ambition took her from New Jersey to Broadway by way of a host of other places, but how, once she got to the Great White Way in the mid-70s, things didn't go quite as planned, how, at two of her lowest moments thereafter, she agreed to do things that she had sworn she would never do, namely a soap opera and a sitcom, and, as a result, wound up making her name on One Life to Live from 1977 through 1983, and then on Who's the Boss from 1984 through 1992. What led her, roughly a decade into the 21st century, to reluctantly return to the theater after 22 years away, ultimately resulting in her becoming one of only six performers who have ever won Tonys in back-to-back years, thereby reinvigorating her career on stage and screen, what it was like for her to return to series television on Ugly Betty and Transparent, and then to land the job of telling Marilyn Miglin's story in two installments of The Assassination of Gianni Versace, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Dame Judith Light, I must insist on calling you that. Finally, we can do this. We've been trying for a long time, and it's an honor to have you on. Well, I'm delighted. I'm really delighted to talk to you. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? 
Trenton, New Jersey. My father was in the institutional food business for a long time, and then a bunch of things happened, and he left the partners that he was working with, and he sold washing machines and shoes to help put me through college. And then he became an accountant in the Hunts Point market. Wow. So it's a very complicated history, but (laughs) quite a brilliant and fabulous man he was. And my mother was a woman's wear buyer in a store in Port Chester, New York, called Kaplan's. But she had done a lot of stuff in Trenton before that, but she only worked part-time. But then when my father's job changed, she had to go back to work full-time. So she worked at a store buying women's clothes at a place called The Ship Shop. Okay. I know. Good workers. Yeah. You know. Now, growing up, do you remember when you first expressed an interest? I was little. I was three. My mother helped me memorize Twas the Night Before Christmas. (laughs) I know. Isn't that just like crazy? And I performed it for my father. And it was it was one of those moments that they talk about a psychological moment called a palimpsest moment. And it was that was the moment where it all sort of grabbed me. And then I spent years getting away from trying to get my father's approval or my mother's (laughs) approval to become a person who was in the business for what I considered to be more of the accurate appropriate reasons to be in this business. But along the way, there were a few things. I read about a fourth grade play. I read about a few things. What were the things where you were getting the feedback that made you decide this is worth sticking with? I intuited it. I felt it. Also, I had great teachers along the way. I had a wonderful kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Bergen, who wrote in one of my report cards that this is something that I had shown aptitude for. In first grade, I wrote a play and I was in it and I wrote it and starred in it and and I got a lot of acknowledgement and it was, I was always on the outside. I was always sort of the other in a lot of ways. And I think that's what's been part of my my work, my advocacy work, uh, that I understood what it meant to be sort of not understood. And so, and then I had Mrs. Thompson in fourth grade and, you know, there were all these things, all of these people along the way that just kept supporting me in what I, what I was doing. And I, and then my parents put me in a performing arts situation. I went to some acting teachers and things like that. So it just kept escalating. Had your parents also at one point wanted to be actors? I think so. Yeah. I think they always had a penchant for it. But I I think because of their lives and the, when they grew up, you know, my father grew up during the Depression. My mother was in the Depression, but her father had money. And so it wasn't something that touched her in the same way that it did my father. But I think that they knew that they wouldn't ever be able to do anything. My mother had a great singing voice. Uh, my father did too. My mother did plays at Trenton State in the chorus. And, you know, she brought me with her mm-hmm. when she was doing those things. So it was really, it was one of those things that I think they wished for. But then when they saw the aptitude in me, they were all full bore. Yeah. So when they hear their only child wants to go to Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. to major in theater and liberal arts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were not saying, you know, get practical, do something. No, my mother always said that to me. She said, oh, yes. Oh, please. I mean, it's like, you're laughing. But it's it's like, no, no. It was that, like, you should go to law school or you should study something else or have a backup. Or she said, and this was that time. Or marry a lawyer, marry a doctor, marry a dentist. Because it's like, wait, mom, I can do all that myself. Right. You, I don't need to marry into that. Right. So when you 
went to Carnegie, was that formative? You know, what were those years like for, for you as you were getting ready to go out into the world? Yeah, they were challenging. They yeah. were really challenging. Because, you know, when you grow up and you're in community theater and you're the star and, you know, you're the star of the school plays and everybody's lauding you and everybody says, oh, my God, you're so talented. You know, it's like when I got there, what I've often talked about and what I said when I looked at the the brochure to go there, because I went for their summer program. Mm -hmm. I went to a girls' private school, and I had this wonderful teacher, and she was also somebody who supported me mm -hmm. with the dramas. I was mm -hmm. talking about people who supported me, Ruth Strand. Mm -hmm. And she said, I think you should go to Carnegie for the summer and see how you like it. I read in the brochure, and it said, this program is as rigorous and exacting as theater itself. And they weren't kidding. They really drilled you guys hard. They really did. You were not allowed to be on the main stage. You couldn't be in play on the main stage for the first year, I think it was. And we had to build props, and we had to learn how to do costumes, and we had to be someone's dresser, and we had to learn how to do all aspects of the business. And it was the greatest thing that could have happened to me because I went to school very young. I went to Carnegie when I was very young. I think I had just turned 17. Wow. And I didn't really know what the real world of the theater and this business was going to be. And they woke me up. And there were 60 of us, I think, that came into the class with me. And by the end, there were 15 of us that were left. It, it, it was really, they were rigorous. And people dropped away. They said, oh, my God, this is not for me. And, and I just, I kept knowing. I kept, like I said before, I intuited that this was what I was to do. When you came out, though, were you imagining a career exclusively in the theater, or did you always hope that there would be a screen element as well? Oh, no, I was going to only do feature films in theater. That was my plan. Okay. I mean, what I did was I went into repertory theater for about four and a half right. years, and that really helped me a lot. But then when I got finished with that, I always knew that I would not stay in rep, that I wanted to go to New York at some point. I thought everything was going to come to me. That this was the way that it was going to be. And, you know, it's like, you know, you want to talk about your plan. You want to tell God right. your plans, you know, <laughs> Make them laugh. God, will, yeah. she laughs. Right. I mean, it's like there's no planning any of this. Now I look back on it and right. I say, look at the way that I was operating, which was so naive, unsophisticated prejudice about the business, about what part of the business was good, mm -hmm. what part of the business was not good. So my whole idea was to just do feature films and theater. That was what I was going to do. So initially with those four years of rep in Milwaukee and then Seattle, where I just was yesterday. You were uh, in Seattle? Yeah, I'd never been. It was was it raining? A, it was not, luckily. but It's uh, such a gorgeous city. I was reading, though, about your years with those two companies yeah. and you were with some other very talented people as well. And I'll leave it to you to share who they were. But I mean, that's got to be a grind for four years of, you know, maybe you can just explain what that lifestyle is like. Obviously, it gave you important tools, but I can't imagine you would have loved that to continue forever. No, that's so interesting. Nobody's really ever asked me a lot about those years. And when I was at Carnegie, they had this wonderful program that with the TCGs, which are the Theater Communications Group Auditions, and it was run at that time by a woman named Rosemary Tischler. But Ro, when she got you, she was your champion. And she saw me at the preliminaries, which were in New York, and then I got into the finals in Chicago. 
And she always stayed in touch, and I stayed in touch with her. And so those four years were really the application of what I had been going through at Carnegie, Mm -hmm. how to apply the training, and what does it mean in the practical sense? What does it mean to do eight shows a Mm -hmm. week? What does it mean to go to a city that you don't know, you don't know anyone there, you arrive and everything is new. Mm -hmm. And not only are you finding your way around a community, you're finding your way about having to get a life and an apartment and meet people and go to rehearsal and the life aspect of it as well as the the work aspect of it is very complicated. And you're not making that much money. And you're not making that much money. And so you have to find the appropriate housing for yourself. And then you have to do your whole budget. And you have to figure out how you're going to live within the structure of this work that you've chosen to do. And I was very young. And it was my initial commitment to life in the in the business and the test if you're i'm sure plenty of people dropped out they do they do but also one of the things that happens is that people don't have some kind of person who is there for them i don't mean just a mentor because a mentor implies that you're the weak one and you you're the one sometimes you're the one who needs the help well a mentor mentee relationship goes both ways. And I found those kinds of people. I've always had those kinds of people. I sought that out. And so there were a lot of people in those companies that were there for me in very important ways that were guiding me. I always knew Rosemary was there for me. I left Milwaukee. Nagel Jackson came into Milwaukee. I had been there. I'd been invited after TCGs to go to Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. A man named Tunch Yolman. Turkish gentleman was running the theater. Tunch was leaving. Nagel Jackson, who's a wonderful playwright now and a fabulous artistic director, came in and put a company together. And Clive Barnes came out to review that company. And so Nagel said to me something really fascinating and really important that was also continued to be part of my training. He said, you don't know about the rest of the world. He said, you don't know what's out there. He said, I want you to leave here. He said, I would keep you here. But he said, you're going to go elsewhere. And he said, I want you to go to New York and I want you to see every single thing you possibly can. And to this day, I still I see, I see just about everything. I don't care if it's off Broadway or off Broadway. I see everything. And I went to Seattle rep and I went with this friend of mine, Jim Jansen. We'd both been at Milwaukee and we both went to Seattle. But that was really the only person that I knew. Mm -hmm. So it was this finding my way in life and theater. And I think you're right. I think what happens to people is it's just too much. It's too daunting. It's let me just stay in one place and let me have my life. Let me do great things like going to teach at the university and whatever uh, city I'm in. I don't think anyone ever dreams as their be all end all to be doing rep in Milwaukee or Seattle, no offense to them, but it's, there's the hope that it will, I would imagine for most people lead to New York. It's actually interesting because it was not so. There were great, great actors that chose to make their lives in there. They had families, they had children, they wanted a steady gig. That's what they did. And they loved that. Mm-hmm. And that worked for them. That was never going to work for me. Because? Um, because oh, such a good question. <laughs> because I have always felt something larger driving me. 
not just my ambition, which was, which is clear, and you know, I'm not going to be coy about that. that. Yeah. Not going to be coy about it. But there was also, I knew there was something bigger for me uh-huh. to do in relation to the work that I would do. Uh-huh. Because I've said this many times. I think we're in a service business. Uh-huh. I really do. I think what we do is to give people insight into another human life that they would never, ever know about. And we get to do that in film and television and the theater. And all of a sudden, people are opened up to worlds that they never knew possible, which I think leads to ending bigotry and prejudice. Yes, an empathy machine. And an empathy. Absolutely. The most important word. Without question. And so I just knew that I was going to be going somewhere else that would have a larger scope for me in some way. So how actually did it happen that you wind up in New York? Well, I called Rosemary and I said, is it time for me to leave? After these four years. After these four years, four and a half. But yeah, I said, is it time for me to come to New York? And she said, yes. And she said, I'm casting Doll's House with Liv Ullman. And Sam Waterston. And she said... <laughs> for Joe Papp, right? For Joe Papp. This is 1975. That's right. And this is going to be your Broadway debut? That's right. And was it what you expected? No. <laughs> Nothing ever is. No. We know this, right? It's like we think it's going to be something. Right. It's never that. So what was the biggest surprise? couple things. Watching Liv and Sam work with each other and watching that rehearsal process. And there was a director that Liv had brought with her from the Norwegian National Theater, and he was directing. And then I watched when Joe came in and watched a rehearsal and how Joe began to change things. And then what happened with Liv and when Ingmar Bergman came to see the show. And I mean, it was... I mean, everybody came to see her. She is... That was the height of her, you know, phenomenon. Magnificent. And to see her bring that film career and the intimacy of what she and Bergman had always created, to see her bring that into this performance was just remarkable. It was one of those experiences where I learned so much. There were two other women that were on that show who are no longer with us. Wonderful actress named Virginia Vestoff. And another woman named Barbara Colby, who subsequently was killed by a drive-by shooting here out in Los Angeles. She was a remarkable actor. And she taught me so much about this wonderful, wonderful story that I never forgot. She had done a play, and she had gotten horrible notices. You know, like those kinds of notices that make you wilt and leave the business. (laughs) And this is what she did. I think it was not Summerstock, but it was just like some summer theater, whatever. And she, God love her, took the review and blew it up (laughs) to the size of the wall, practically, I think she did, and put it on the wall in the green room. (laughs) And she wrote a note on it that said, dear friends and actors and fellow artists, I have seen this. Mm -hmm. Love Barbara. <laughs> Isn't that the best? That's it's funny. like, so all of these people who are right. tiptoeing, ra- nobody, you can't, you can't do it. So anyway, so those were a lot of learning experiences for me in terms of what the business was. And again, again, this is that trajectory of right. how do you learn? What do you learn? How are your thoughts 
your programmed idea about what your career should be, who you should be, how people should be giving to you. It's like there's nothing to get in life. What are you going to give? What are you going to give? And who are you going to give to? And what are those choices? All of a sudden, it's a reframing of life. And then the work gets reframed. The context shifts. But it must have been tumultuous year or so after you started there because that show lasted about two months. Then you go into another one on Broadway, Herzl, lasts less than a week, I think. Is that right? We did. I don't remember how many previews we did. And then it was like right. we opened two performances. I mean, it was like I mean, we were so, at the Palace Theater. Uh, and so know. on the one hand, you're where you want to be, it sounds like, with Broadway. But on the other hand, it's got to be crushing to work that hard on, on something or be a part of and then not have it take. And I guess what followed those two was a kind of rough period. Very, very rough because it was the the destruction and the disillusionment mm -hmm. of the dream that I had held onto. That's the thing about the child and coming mm -hmm. to become the grown-up. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, everybody says they want to be a grown-up and nobody wants to grow up. Well, that was me. I don't want to grow up. <laughs> I was like, right. no, right. I want it this way. So right. it's like, but you realize that it was several things that it was like, I kept living in the question of what was I here for? What was I to do with what I thought I had been given? And I kept saying, is it going to be enough just to go to an, another theater and do another play? And, and is it only going to be me serving me and serving my ego and what I want and what I'm going to get? And I was like, so those two things came crashing together. And it's like, you know, what they talk about Shiva, the destroyer. There she <laughs> just sort of waltzed in and crushed everything. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened because what it did was it allowed me to look at who I was being in the world, in my work, in my life, and I didn't like who I was being. It was the aspect of what you are above doing? The aspect of what I'm above doing was one of the aspects of it, but it was also the other question. There were, there were two things that were going on. I mean, I, I went into a real depression. And I threw my back out and I was having trouble walking and I was laying on my bed and I just looked up at the sky and I said, look, I don't know who's up there. I don't know if anybody's up there, but whatever it is, just I give up. But what I meant was I didn't give up. What I did was I said, I surrender. Let me be of service in some way. That's what the bottom line was. That's what I wanted. Because you really, I mean, from what I read, you're collecting unemployment. Oh, you're yeah. not getting any no. bites even. No. My unemployment was running out. Mm -hmm. Love my father. I said, Dad, I need some money. He said, how much do you need? Mm -hmm. I said, $600 would get me through the month, I think. He said, I'll give you three. I miss him to this, mm -hmm. to this, to this moment. Mm -hmm. It was so extraordinary. And I made it. I did. I was taking the bus or the subway down to down to Battery Park to my unemployment office to pick up my unemployment. And I thought, there's something more. 
there's something more than this thing that has this ego thing that or approval thing that's been driving me all of my life. There's something else. So what was going on was there, I was depressed and I was having trouble, but I was also being a spoiled brat. It's like, I want what I want when I want it. And up to that point, you'd more or less gotten Got it. it. Yeah. It was all, you know, Carnegie was hard, mm -hmm. but it was valuable. Mm -hmm. Great teachers, great learning experience. Rep was, you know, nose to the grindstone, all all of that. But I was doing what I loved. I was, you know, I call Rosemary. I come to New York. I get in a Broadway show. But it was the thing that w made me wake up. I woke up. I can't imagine being in this business, and I say being, mm -hmm. I mean that, I choose that word accurately, being in this business and holding on to the beliefs that I had before, because that was not going to get me where I wanted to be as a human being. I'm my instrument. I am my violin. I am my piano. I am the flute. If I don't know what works about yeah. me and what doesn't work about me, if I'm not awake, mm -hmm. The unexamined life is not worth living. Right. If I am not that, I bring less to every character that I portray. And so that was the greatest gift of this dissolution, this dissolving of this person. And how did you dig yourself out of that? I went into therapy, yeah. which was essential for me. I mean, I didn't realize how essential it was until I got in there. I was extremely overweight. I was emotionally overeating. I was carrying that kind of those weights around with me. And those were the things that were standing in my way. We can all say, oh, well, I didn't get that job because of that didn't happen for me because there was a kind of sense of victimization that I was living in. And I, I was like, if I'm going to be a victim, I'm never going to get anywhere. Whatever disappointment I have, I hold myself responsible. And that means simply the ability to respond. It was my ability to respond to what I was seeing about my behavior and what I was doing. I looked at it and I was watching myself from the outside looking in as that sort of aerial view. And I said, wait, this is untenable. I don't know who I am. How can I bring anything to the work? that I want to do. And it was in this kind of moment of, I guess, personal crisis, you could say that you get an offer that's sort of ironic, right? I mean, the, in the sense that okay. it was one of the things you were never going to do, never right? Can do. you share what that was? Yeah. It was the soap opera one life to live. And so it's 1977. Yeah. You're at your low point. Yeah. And the way I understand it, when you came out of Carnegie Mellon, which I think you said your parents helped you to get through like many nice I got a nice partial parents. scholarship and then they helped they, they helped help the rest. me too yeah so you, they've invested in you they're they're behind you as an actress but there's one assurance that you basically gave them coming out of Carnegie never going to do a soap opera <laughs> never going to do a soap opera never going to do a why? sitcom why because at that point what did it Theater represent to you and feature right. films right. because the high arts the high arts it's like fine jewelry mm -hmm. that's what you do we don't do costume well right. Anybody look at great costume jewelry <laughs> right, today, it's right, like right. one of our most favorite things, right. right? And it was interesting because I had just come out of the O'Neill. I had been up at the O'Neill Playwrights Foundation that summer. And I started to learn something there that surprised me and was also part of that journey that I was on. And I did a reading of Wendy Wasserstein's play, did the first reading of Uncommon Women and Others. Wow. 
And it was, I watched as the O'Neill, again, it was that learning experience. I, the O'Neill taught me that it's not about you. It's about how you serve the playwright. Mm-hmm. How do we serve Wendy's vision to get this play out there? How all of a sudden, I, you know, I'm working with Swoosie Kurtz and all these other remarkable women, Jill Eikenberry and all these fabulous actresses was like, wait, oh, oh, <laughs> this is a team sport. Mm-hmm. This is not about you. Nobody cares about you. Everybody cares about you as a piece of something, mm-hmm. but it's a piece of something. And right, it doesn't matter if you're great in a piece of garbage. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden goes back to this service mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Who am I serving? How am I being? So that's when I came back and I, I was just like, oh, wait a minute. Something else is going on here. And one of the things I always felt that I was missing was an opportunity to have a larger space, a larger audience. I thought when the soap situation came up, I thought, wait a minute, can I use what I've been trained to do to create a character in daytime television? And when I started working on the show... Well, let's just say, first yeah. of all, how when you were originally approached about it... I was how, an understudy. You were to be an understudy for like a, a day, right? For a day. And this was always, though, for the part of Karen. Always for the part of Karen. Karen Willick, is that the Karen right? Karen Willick, you and, got uh, it. And so essentially, just to contextualize for <laughs> listeners who may not have have had the pleasure in from 1977 to 1983, <laughs> the wife of a doctor in a wealthy community mm-hmm. who is doing a little prostituting on the side. Yes, I was busy. Yes. <laughs> I was very busy. So, but but we, we laughed. But it was actually the writer, Gordon Russell, came to me once I got the job, before I got the job. But the way you got it, though, is you're there as an understudy for a day. Right, one day. You don't really do anything that day. No, I just sit there and wait, but I talk to the producer. Okay, that's... He says to me, if you got this part, what would you do with this part? Mm -hmm. In comes all of the thoughts, the training, the wherewithal, the what does it mean to create a, a character that people can come to understand. And I talked about what it meant to have low self-esteem and how by having low self-esteem, you are driven to do things that you ordinarily would not do until you handle that. Mm-hmm. My own issue. I was just going to say, it sure. sounds like you're describing a version of that's yes. in its own way a method, right? You're just... In its own way, very much so. And very much the use of that and talking about that and understanding that. I had been in therapy and I was coming to understand that aspect of myself. And it's so interesting. I've of course, I've been waiting to talk to you for forever. So, of course, we're talking about these things that I haven't really talked about in this kind of this kind of depth before. But it was true. It was like I was I was looking at why was my self esteem so low? Why was I always seeking the approval of other people? Why did I have to turn myself inside out to not be who I somewhere? deep in the recesses, knew myself to be. What was your conclusion? I was too frightened. I think I was too, if I didn't please everybody, I wouldn't get this kind of career that I thought I should have, or I couldn't have this life that I, you know, that I had pictured in my mind. A picture is a two-dimensional thing. It is not a three-dimensional active life. Mm -hmm. And I was living in a two-dimensional life in my mind. And if you're living in your mind, you can't get out and you can't 
connect with other people. You're going to give to other people. It's all about you. It's all about me and my ego and what I needed and wanted. And so now you have this dilemma. You are broke. Yeah. And you have an offer for three hundred fifty dollars a day. But you're going to have to go do it on it. Be on a soap. On your knees, babe. (laughs) Surrender. (laughs) Look at what the universe is putting in your path. Stop saying the things you're never going to do, and allow yourself to be shown the path. Look at where you're being led. Ride the horse in the direction it is going. Mm Instead of this thing that so many of us do, and I did it too, it's like, no, no, not that. I don't do that. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. No, no, I'm never going to do that. And every one of those directors on the soap was a theater director. Mm -hmm. I mean, soaps, I think, in the early days of TV were live. It's live theater. Exactly. Live theater and extraordinary actors. Mm -hmm. I mean, I worked How many pages did you have to do a day? A lot. I mean, some days when my story was heavy, it was like 60 pages a day. And I never learned how to read the teleprompter. I couldn't do that. So, I mean, for theater purposes, that probably when you did go back to the theater eventually, that's probably a skill set that was enhanced because of the... Totally. Totally. You got it. The muscle was right there. But what I wanted to remind myself Mm -hmm. to tell you is that Mm -hmm. the story was the story of Catherine Deneuve and Belle de Jour. That was the story. Gordon Russell came to me and he said, this is what we think we want to do. How do you feel about this? This was after I had gotten the job. I had auditioned. What they did was I talked to the producer that day. I didn't go on. They were auditioning to replace this woman and I went in and auditioned Mm -hmm. and that's when I got the part and that's when I looked at it and I said wait a minute this could change a lot and it did because there were many women who came to me during that time and said not only were there prostitutes who wrote me and wanted to get out of the life which is what the struggle always was in in the character But there were also people who came and wrote and talked to me about their own low self-esteem and the things that they did, that they were driven by that unconscious low self-esteem, that they did things. They, in quotes, prostituted themselves Mm -hmm. in some ways in their lives. And I thought, okay, here's where we get to talk about these kinds of things. Now we can have a full-on conversation about what it means when you discount yourself. Mm And drive yourself into places that you don't want to, you you say you don't want to go, but your unconscious drives you there. So from this being the worst case scenario, it ends up being that 1980 and 1981, you win the Daytime Emmy for Best Actress in a Drama Series. You meet your future husband. I do. And- Who I'm still with, by the way. Who you're still with, yes. (laughs) And then basically when you are nearing your fifth year with the show and decide it's time to- leave, which I'll ask you to talk about in a moment, (laughs) the way that you wound down this character was so powerful in a courtroom scene that is still taught by acting teachers today and has been included on lists of the greatest TV moments of all time by TV Guide and others. This resolution to the dilemma of of poor Karen, basically that's the end of your, your five years there. And I just wonder how you were different at the end when you decided it was time to go. I don't know that I was clearly different. That piece on the witness stand Mm -hmm. was the culmination of five years of emotional experiences for that character. I had lived them all. Mm -hmm. All those 
in quotes, Johns that I was talking about, all of the, I thought, Karen thought, being forced into prostitution, there was a story to save her friend Vicky. And that's how she ends up telling the truth right. about herself, and exposing herself to the whole protection Canada. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, most people have right, seen it, right, but, it right. but she had been my friend. Mm-hmm. And so it was a mythic sort of Joseph Campbell kind yeah. of iconic story of the coming to the truth that the truth will set you free, mythic relationship of friendship do I sacrifice myself? Do I hoist myself on my own petard in order to save someone else? These were mythic ideas about this story. And it was also a story of someone who, when they came out, their whole life changed. It is the story that I've always talked about, my respect and honor and inspiration from the LGBTQ community of the courage of what it means to come out and tell your truth in front of your God, your religion, your law, your world, your country, your government, your constitution, and say, I know you think I'm this person. I am not this person. I am actually this person. This is my truth. And that is what I think people responded to in that. And for me, it was the same thing. There was a sense in which I felt incredibly free. And I didn't know it was time to go. It was my husband who said, Mm -hmm. if you stay here, he had been out in California and he'd been shooting a lot of things and after originally being on the yes, show with after, you. Yeah. Exactly. And I said, I can't. I'm too scared. Because he's saying, come out to L.A. and There's gold in them there. Yeah, right. yeah. And I said, no, no, I don't drive. I don't <laughs> like sunshine. I love you. But this thought is making me incredibly frightened and miserable. And I, I was really terrified to change something that had been so successful. I was living in the city that I adore. I was doing work that I loved and adored, working with people I thought were magnificent and are still friends to this day. But he said, and also my managers at the time said, you have to listen to him. He's right. If you go to California, you will work. In reality, though, you got out there and whoops. whoops. (laughs) Well, what was your first project? Don't ask me this. Oh, Scott. (laughs) God, I loved you before. All right. It was a, mo- a movie of the week with wa- wonderful people, sure. fabulous people. Yeah. About? It was called, stop it. It was called Intimate Agony, the, the herpes story. Okay. <laughs> now can I leave? Stop it. You, you, may, you may not. You may not. It was just, I was like, oh. <laughs> and I'm terrible in it. For anybody who wants to find it, go out. I'm sure it's out there. I'm just awful. <laughs> Oh, my God. You also did the, you know, an episode of St. Elsewhere, I I believe. You had some other good things. You were actually in that first, looks like year, 83, 84, leading up to something I'll ask you about, of course, in a moment. You were on St. Elsewhere, Family Ties, Remington Steel, you know, even if it was just an episode here or there. But then... When, I don't know, you might have been getting a little concerned that you'd made the wrong decision. No kidding. I understand that the another pilot that comes your way is 
and I'm not misspeaking when I say this, you're the boss? That's right. So take me from there. Okay. I kept not getting jobs. Mm -hmm. I worked on St. Elsewhere with this fabulous director, Victor Lobel, also theater person. I mean, just amazing. Great people on the show, as you know. Then I didn't get a job. I kept auditioning. And I got a call from the agents. They said, oh, you got this one. And I was like, oh, this is so great. <laughs> I think a half an hour later, they called back. They said they made a mistake. It wasn't you. Oh. oh. I was like, okay, so am I going to use the things I've learned before, which is I'm never going to do a soap opera. I'm back in the place again. You know, it's like none of us wake up in the morning and say, hey, yo, I think I'll transform today. So I'm still dealing with this stuff, this residue that's still prevalent. I'm annoyed. I'm angry. Mm -hmm. I'm depressed. You know, depression in a lot of ways is anger turned inward. Well, and also be part, well, it's justifiable. You were the hottest thing there could be on soaps. And now you're back at square one. Yeah. Well, you don't have to behave like I behaved. I can promise you. <laughs> you don't have to get angry. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a spoiled brat. What you have to do is find a level of acceptance. And I kept being so annoyed and angry that when I wasn't getting things, I said to my manager, who Herb Hampshire, 37 years, who passed away a couple years ago, Sorry, said to me, you're so angry when you walk in the room. They feel your energy. They feel your entitlement. And after I told him what bridge he could jump off of, <laughs> I said, you're right. I get it. And when I went in for You're the Boss. They said calm to be. I was in a different place. I loved them so much. I loved the show so much. From just the pilot? Just the pilot. Yeah. And I sit, I went into the audition and I read the two scenes that they had designated and I said, can I read this scene? And I ended up, I think, reading almost the entire pilot. Wow. And at that time, ABC had had me up for three different pilots. One was a thing called Command 5, mm -hmm. which I don't think you've ever heard of, no, or Staff of Life, I don't think you've no. ever heard of. And and But Staff of Life was about a, a group of soap opera writers. So I thought, oh, this is a sign. Right. So And this thing called You're the Boss. So you have to put something in first position. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a sign about the soap opera, so I put Staff of Life in first position. And I also love Jay Sandrich, who was the director mm -hmm. on that. So... Well, what happened was, if once you put something in first position, you know about this, you're locked in first position. And I said to Herb, you know, I don't think I need to go up for the you're the boss thing, because I was going to go on tape for that. And he said, you're scared. I said, you're wrong. <laughs> okay, like, like I know anything, right? He said, get your stuff together and go to that audition. Go to that tape audition. How much comedy had you done up to that point? I had done a lot in repertory theater. Yeah, yeah. But where I learned about comedy was from Tony Danza on that show. That's where I learned about comedy. So I went up for the audition and I said, oh, whoops, I think I made it. I called Herb afterwards and I said, I, I made a mistake. And he said, well, you can only hope that the powers that be put you where you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And they saw the tape of Tony and me at ABC. And they said, oh, we're not putting her in that show. <laughs> we're, we're putting her in this show. Well, this was the first, my first introduction to you when they, I guess, retitled it who's the boss, and was on from 1984 to 1992. 
Angela Bauer, single working mom who hires this character played by Tony Danza to be her kid's nanny. 196 episodes you did. And it's actually a pretty groundbreaking no show. Question. I mean, let's just note for the record, single mom who has a successful career as an advertising executive, owns her own business, wearing shoulder pads and power suits as one must in the 80s. And hair extensions. And hair extensions. Piles up them, yes. <laughs> and But has a male nanny at home with her kids while she's taking care of business. That's right. I mean, you must have heard probably over the years that, I mean, this is pre- Working Girl, the movie. This you is bet. pre a lot of stuff that really kind of introduced the idea to a lot of people that this was even possible. That's right. And we're only talking about it now. We didn't really talk about it then. And I didn't realize. A lot of people thought, oh, it's just this silly little sitcom. And I cannot tell you. I just did a, a rack breakfast mm-hmm. the other morning. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you how many young women came up to me and said, that was my first introduction. That character, that show, that told me it was possible. And they also told me that they watched it with their mothers and their mother, it illuminated many of their mother's lives. I had no idea. Well, how about also young guys who grew up watching it and seeing that that's not weird? That's right. That's exactly right. And it is how we train. It was just an article in the New York Times about how we train our young boys and our young men to have a different kind of relationship to women in their world, to mothers in their world, their grandmothers, their their whole sense of what women do, mm-hmm. who women really are, and the power base from which we operate. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think not enough people are talking about that as well. Mm-hmm. It was during the run of that show, I think, somehow maybe during your hiatuses, you were doing other things. And in 1989, you made a TV movie called The Ryan White Story, which is about a young hemophiliac who contracts AIDS from a blood transfusion. Is that what sparked your actual interest in AIDS or was that a result of your interest in AIDS? I think your interest predates that. Yes, definitely. Well, where, so it. how did that even begin? Because you're very... To this day, but certainly long before a lot of other people, very associated with AIDS activism. Yeah. When you're in the theater, and I had been to the O'Neill, as I said, the O'Neill Playwrights Foundation, and I was reading Backstage Magazine, as those of us who are looking for jobs or want to do, (laughs) and it's a fabulous place to go look for stuff. Mm -hmm. And I read about this young man that I had been at the O'Neill with, and I thought, that's odd. And then I started getting phone calls from friends who I'd been in repertory theater with saying, did you know that so-and-so is really sick and he may die? And I'm like, wait a minute, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And it started to shock me into realizing that something was happening in the theater community that I was not aware of. And then I began to see more and more of what was happening and more friends were dying and people who I consider my family. And then I began to watch how the country and how they were being treated, how... President that wouldn't say the word. That's right. That's right. And it's like, wait a minute. Oh, this is homophobia in full view. And I looked at Elizabeth Taylor, who was supporting her friend Rock Hudson, and I said, wait a minute. There is something that needs to be spoken to, and I don't feel right about myself. Who Again, who am I being? 
if I don't say something about what I see. It has to be spoken. It has to be addressed. And I said, my friends, who I consider family, are dying, and we're losing an immense amount of talent in our world. In our artists are are dying, and something must be attention. Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, attention must be paid. And so I began speaking about it, and my agent, who is no longer with us, David Eidenberg, said to me, "There's this movie." I said. I want it. Mm-hmm. I really, I really want to do that. And that was the Ryan White. And I, and was the Ryan White story. And I, Ryan was still alive. I was playing his mother, Jeannie, and they were both on the set. And one day I heard a reporter on the set say to Ryan, talk to me about your experience. And he said, well, you know, people would spit at me and call me a fag. And I was like, wait, something's wrong. There's something wrong in our country. We say we're a country of compassion. We say we are spiritual or religious people, and we're operating diametrically opposed to who we say we are. Now, we can say we are this, but if we just talk the talk and don't walk the walk, we're not going to move the culture. We're not going to really transform the world we're living in. And all of a sudden, it just everything broke open for me. And I just said, I have to do more. I must, must do more. And so that's how. That was almost 30 years ago. Yeah, that's wow. right. That's right. So just to come back to who's the boss for a moment, when that show's run ended after eight years, you were probably, I think, almost certainly more famous than you'd ever been up to that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, One Life to Live was daytime. This is mm-hmm. what time would Who's the Boss air? Do you remember? Eight o'clock left? on Tuesday nights. There you go. I mean, that's a prime time. We were first on Thursday nights. They moved us around the whole first year. They finally found our spot. Thursday. We were opposite the Cosby lineup on Thursday nights oh the first time. Oh, my God. Well, so the show ends. You are in a better career position probably to pick opportunities or do things than you ever were at the, up until that point. Did you capitalize on that moment? I had been capitalizing on the moment. I had been doing lots of movies of the week, and I finished Who's the Boss in April, did another pilot right after that. The Simple Life? No, 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 that 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 came later. No, this was called Letting Go. I mean, how apt, right? right? right. I mean, (laughs) the universe wants to make you laugh, right? right? right, right. And it didn't get picked up. And I did another movie that fall called Men Don't Tell, which was about a woman abusing her husband. I did it with Peter Strauss, and it was quite impactful and very difficult to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it kind of put me in a place of going back and questioning again, was I doing what I was here to do? Which I think is everybody's sort of existential question. Am I doing what I'm here to do in this particular life, this incarnation. You know, who knows if we have more, but if this is the one we got now, right? So that was when The Simple Life came up, was after that. Mm-hmm. And that was something that Herb, my manager, had created for me. Not to be confused with... With the Paris, Paris Hilton, Hilton, right. Exactly. <laughs> this was uh, Nicole before. Richie's show. Right. No, this was not. No, this yeah. was... Yeah, this was before them. Right. And it was about a woman who was a Martha Stewart wannabe, which right. I had been for so long. But they were also <laughs> doing shows at that time about right. that. I mean, Gene Smart did one that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gene was at Seattle Rep when I was there. Oh, really? Speaking of... Oh you know, oh. great, talented people. Yeah. Anyway, so we made six of them. 
We made six simple lives. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many they aired. I think it probably is still on television because nobody told us it was canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so we did that, and it just it didn't go. So there were these things that were happening where things were not happening again. Mm-hmm. And I was in therapy and using that to help me handle what the circumstances were that were that were going on, and something else started to happen and I I got an audition for a play and I said to Herb this is not a good part for me it was called if memory serves then it was about an aging sitcom star and he said it's a perfect part for you <laughs> yeah. right I'm right sure he said that Herb over. right oh my god and I said no it's not he said you're frightened to audition and he was right Mm-hmm. And I was frightened. I was frightened to go back to the stage. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I had the chops anymore. I had been away too long. I had gotten comfortable. I had allowed myself to get comfortable. As a TV person. As a TV person. Exactly. You know, you're doing a lot. You're doing a lot of good work. You're working with great people. You're doing interesting projects. I was, you know, doing all this, these amazing stories of these incredible women. I was like... Okay, so what else? Well, I'm not pushing myself. Plus, I I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but everybody always says when you hit your 40s as a woman in this business, it's not fun anymore for in a lot of ways. I mean, it just the the hill gets a lot steeper. Yes. That was that your that's what they say. Well, clearly you've defied it, but there may have been moments where it didn't feel like that. That's all true. Mm -hmm. And then comes the question that you have to live in, that I lived in, is that true for me? Mm -hmm. I do not want that, allow that to be true. It goes back to my being a victim to something outside of me. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true, that it's not the reality in many ways. But as you see, there are so many women now Mm -hmm. Those of us who are past 40, way past 40, also saying, excuse me, I will be doing this. (laughs) And people in, quotes, the business are actually paying attention to their credit, paying attention and saying, wait a minute, here is this whole world of stories of human beings that there are people out there that of that age range that actually want to see that or younger people want to see that i mean part of this is that you have stuck with it long enough to now be doing it in the era in which there aren't just whatever the four or five channels that there were when you were doing who's the boss yep now there's so many including as you well know amazon and fx and all these others that it's no longer the goal to get a massive audience because nobody can when it's that fragmented it's what audience is not tapped that we can tap into that's right that's right and i think that that's illuminating and terrifically exciting mm-hmm. and that is also to everybody else's credit in the business waking up and saying okay not only do we hear you we see you and your stories are worth telling They are worth talking about, and they are worth making a world about these stories. And so for you now, you have this question, do you overcome your 
apprehension about theater, going back to the thing that you had started from? I was so unhappy with myself. Again, it was the thing that drove me, which was, I don't like who I'm being. I'm awake to it. I'm uncomfortable living in it, uncomfortable living in that question. I mean, we forget that life is uncertain. It's always uncertain. We find coping mechanisms to help us get through. But when the coping mechanisms disappear and you stop and you stand there just in the awareness of who you are instead of the content and the personality of who you are, all of a sudden there's a different, there's a reframing. So I look at that and I say, I'm talking the talk, but I'm not walking the walk. I'm going to all these AIDS, HIV, LGBTQ, and telling them how they inspire me and how courageous they are. And it's like, but I'm going to stay safe. I'm a little scared. I'm a little nervous. I'm not going to do that thing that's actually possibly going to transform mm -hmm. me in the next step of the transformation. So when I said to Herb that I would go in for it, that play about that aging sitcom, who, who my dear <laughs> right. friend Jonathan Tollins, who right. wrote the play by Aaron Seller, I said, okay. I'm not going to live like this. I'm, I'm unwilling. I just, I can't live with myself if this is what I do. We're all going to die one day. If you're on your deathbed and you look back and you say, oh, I didn't, I didn't live. You know, I let my fear control me. Was it Eleanor Roosevelt who said, you must do the thing you think you cannot do? I mean, to say that thing is like it's stuck with me. And I went and I, he said, it's too bad. You can't go up for it because they cast it. Never mind. You're over. Done. But I said, okay, the next thing that comes to me, I will. I will go. Well, it was in New York. And it was right. for my, who has become my dear friend, Bernie Telsey, my dear friend, yeah, Bobby Lupone, my dear friend, Will Cantler, sure. and my dear, dear, brilliant friend, the producer, Daryl Roth. And it was for this play, Wit. Wit, which wins the Pulitzer Prize for mm -hmm. drama, mm -hmm. 1999. This is 22 years after you were last in the theater. Mm -hmm. This audition, the one that you say you're going to do no matter what it is, <laughs> now it's to play a woman, a scholar diagnosed with terminal ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. You would, for the part, have to shave your hair and be naked. Be nude, yeah. Which cannot have been unintimidating. It was wildly <laughs> intimidating. <laughs> It's funny because Maggie Edson, who was the, the author of this play, mm -hmm. who is an extraordinary person and writer, I mean, literally wrote this one play. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading the play and it's just, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, oh God, this is really bad because I'm going to have to go audition for this. So I had to fly myself to New York for it. I was going there to do an AIDS benefit. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'll be there. And I read it and I go and... She takes off the baseball cap. This is the end of the play. She takes off the baseball cap. She removes one hospital gown. Then she removes another hospital gown. She takes off the ID bracelet, and she is standing there naked and beautiful in the light. And I close the play, and I'm sobbing. And I went, wait, she is what? <laughs> and beautiful in the light. <laughs> and I said, oh, dear. I said, it was like, I really, this is the thing that's going to take me back. And I thought, they're never going to give it to me. They're not going to give it to some soap opera sitcom person. <laughs> and they did. And you have said that it transformed your life. Yep. Why? What does it mean to let go of the things you're attached to? Mm -hmm. My hair, my hair. I 
did the show for almost a year. I did it on tour. They wouldn't let me do it in New York if I didn't do it on tour. And I did it on tour. So I was on maybe like 10 months and, you know, 11 months shaving my head almost every day, appearing nude every performance. What happened is I began to let go of the things that were binding me to myself and my more of my insecurities that I, by my choice, I was being asked to let go of those things. And that made all the difference. I mean, it's that's the Robert Frost poem. It's yes. the road less traveled. It's like, where do you go and who do you be? Well, let's note some of what's followed that was not long after that, I believe, was the beginning of your run as Judge Elizabeth Donnelly on Law & Order SVU. This was over 2002 through 2010. You were frequently popping up there. And then, you know, specific to the theater, it was a few years afterwards that you, before you went back to Broadway, because Wit was off-Broadway, right? Mm -hmm. But now you're back in 2010, and I don't know, too many people who have had a better four-year stretch than, let's just say, Lombardi, Marie Lombardi, Vince's alcoholic wife, Tony nomination, first one ever in 2010, then... 2011 to 2012, you did other desert cities, Silda Grumman, Jewish woman in crisis. We can come back to more specifics after that. <laughs> First, Tony. The next season, Faye, the matriarch of an Upper West Side family who uses a lot of Yiddish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very funny. In the assembled parties, to that, and that was 2013. By the way, I don't know if you've ever seen these specific numbers, but there are only six performers ever who have won Tonys in back-to-back -back years. That stat was, I had to literally go and put that together. I Because they don't they don't keep their stats the way the Oscar folks do. No. <laughs> Shirley Booth, Gwen Verdon, Sandy Dennis, Steven Spinella, and since you, Laurie, Laurie Metcalf this year in mm -hmm. the same featured actress in a drama category that you won. From being scared to go back to the theater to having three Tony nominations in, I believe, four years... And two of those resulting in Tony's, how did you feel after that? Grateful. You know that thing I said to you in the beginning of the conversation about people that were there, my guides, my angels, my gifts. During Lombardi, well, with Lombardi, the person who brought me back to the theater is a lovely gentleman named Thomas Kale who directed a lovely little show called Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> So I walked into the audition room and I looked at him and I, I felt very much the way I feel about you. I feel like I've known you forever, right? <laughs> and I walked in the room and there's Tommy and, and we've since become, you know, great buddies. I said to him, I just got back from D.C. I had been doing the Kennedy Center Spring Gala or something. Mm -hmm. I took the train back. I've been working on the part. A lot of people said to me, don't take, don't go up for this part. It's too small for you. I said, excuse me, I'm the girl who hasn't been on Broadway since Herzl. Excuse me. That was in what year was that, Scott? So that would have been 34 years prior. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> so I walk in the room and I look at Tommy and he's right. so dear and he's so kind and he's so funny. And I said, can I take off my heels? I got to take off my shoes. He <laughs> said, take off your shoes. We do the audition. I do it. He gives me a note. A really, really good note. Mm. I don't implement it well. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, I felt so comfortable with him. I, I think I said something like, oh, I didn't really get that, did I? And he said, no, not really. <laughs> and But that's my relationship mm -hmm. with Tommy. And so we thought 
Lombardi was going to last for a couple of months. It lasted from September. We did it in the Berkshires in July. Then we came to Broadway in September and October, and it lasted until May. I mean, it was a long, long run. But Tommy was the one. I was in that room, and he, he gave me the part in the room. In the room, wow. That never happens. Wow. That's his generosity. And and he was with the producer, Tony Pondoro, and, and Tony was in the room, too. And they, they gave me the part. And it had all come about because of my friend, Dan Loria. Danny and I, he was, uh, we worked on One Life to Live together. And Dan had recommended me. You and see people the know pieces? him best from Wonder, um, wonder years, years, right? Yeah. 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 And now he's on This Is Us and he right. was on just something else recently. I mean, he's wonderful. And he's yeah, a yeah. major theater person. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah. but look at how the things, it's like Kierkegaard said, mm-hmm. and I say this a lot, life can only be lived going forward. It can only be understood looking backward. <laughs> so all of a sudden there's Tommy and I get the Tony nomination, which shocked me. Then on a matinee day, I think it was, of Lombardi. I got a call from Bern, from the agent from Bernie Telsey's mm-hmm. office. Bernie Telsey, wit, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing a reading of a Richard Greenberg play called On the Babylon Line. They're looking for a Jewish girl. He, Bernie says, Judith Light. <laughs> Rich says, you mean that waspy blonde girl from Who's the Boss? <laughs> Bernie said, trust me, mm-hmm. she can she can do this. So I go in and I do this reading and I do the reading and... Who should be in there but Joe Mantella, who I had never met before, who I worshipped and He's worshipped. Two Tonys for directing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Nominated every, yeah, every, every time. I mean, he's just, he's a genius. Right, right, right. And what's great about Joe is that he demands that you work hard. Mm-hmm. It's not even a demand. It's like, it's an assumption. You're doing this job, and he understands actors. He knows. He's an actor, too. He's a genius actor. So Joe's there, and I... I work on the script because I'm doing the reading and I finish and I say goodbye to everybody. And then because I'm nominated for Tony for Lombardi, Joe is nominated for his acting in Normal Heart. Mm -hmm. And we're seated next to each other at the Tony luncheon. And I, you know, we're chatting and I sort of see him looking at me like, you know, (laughs) it's like, okay, great. You know, good to see you, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how much after that we get the call from the agent that says they want to offer me other desert cities. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that ran from, God, I can't remember. It ran all the way through past the Tonys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Past June of the Tonys the next year. And then Richard Greenberg was commissioned Mm -hmm. by Lynn Meadow at Manhattan Theater Club Mm -hmm. to write a play for Jessica Hecht and myself. And that was The Assembled Parties. That's the thing about saying yes to things. Mm-hmm. I said yes to a reading on a day that I had a matinee, which was like, yeah, okay, fine. great. Yeah. Did it anyway. And that's the space from which those two Tonys came. John Robin Bates, to this day, was the one that said to me, I want you to know the people who are doing the assassination of Johnny Versace. The links are exponential. That's You got to keep putting yourself out there and you keep, do. you know, always demanding the same level of excellence that you always have, because that's what this is evidence of what happens. But but it, it's not you don't do what you want. You do what works. I'm just bummed that I've only seen you once on Broadway. I, I went to Torres Rocaine. You and did. I loved it. You and Kara nightly. Yeah. And I hope you come back again, because I've only started really seriously appreciating and covering Broadway for us since 
2013 or 14. And so now I, like like you, I see everything, which is exciting and right. I love it. But only once have I gotten to see you do it live. So I hope to hope you'll come back. Come on back, yeah. buddy. Right, right. Well, all right. So now hitting the home stretch here, the theater success, logically enough, seems to have fed TV opportunities and everything else because it was in 2006 or 2010 that you now show up back on network TV. In fact, back on ABC with Ugly Betty, what was originally a guest shot Mm -hmm. became a series regular. But the first year as a guest performer, first Emmy nomination in Mm -hmm. that category, Mm -hmm. just the idea of being back as a regular on series TV, though, was that sort of exciting or jarring? I mean, it's a lot had changed in the year since Who's the Boss, right? A lot. I had done this pilot of a, a real estate project called Sold that was written by a gent named Silvio Horta, and it didn't get picked up. And he said to me, I promise you that I will find something else for you. <laughs> yeah, and there you go. It's just, and there you go. Yeah. And so it also speaks to people who keep their word. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, nobody in this business, everybody. <laughs> did, just, that's, that's, not, no. that's not true. Also, when you are part of a team and you know you're part of a team and you want to be, I am still close friends with all of those people from Ugly Betty. We are in touch with each other all the time. So then when I get to see my darling America Ferreira on Superstore, which I think is genius and talk about a, a show for our time, you know, I get to see Michael Yuri. I mean, I get to see Vanessa Williams and on Ortiz. These are my, they're, they're my folk. Mm-hmm. So it was a remarkable experience. And what was even more wonderful was it was the thing that got me back to New York. Right. So that immediately preceded the two Tony winning plays. Right? That's, that's right. Yeah. So it got me back to New York. I mean, you, this is the Kierkegaard thing. You're looking back and you're going, oh, right. got <laughs> it. Now I get it. We were here. The pilot was made in New York. I wasn't in the pilot. Ugly Betty then came back to L.A. to shoot. Bloomberg, in his brilliance and genius, gave the tax break. Which, by the way, I remember being at the Gotham Awards maybe two years ago or something. Yeah. You get the Made in New York Award because of the fact that I think you were one of the people who who's always said, you know, this, this idea of the tax break that they are tax incentive to shoot in New York has resulted in a number of things that you've personally been a part of, but that have brought a lot of vibrancy back to the artistic community there. There's there's just no question about it. And so this thriving theatrical film and television arena in New York is so exciting and so thrilling for me to be a part of. God, you really did your research. Well, Jesus. Uh, um, but but anyway, so I when we got the call from ABC, mm-hmm. America was actually the first one who said to me, she said, they're bringing us back to New York. And I was like, Oh my! And Robert, my husband, said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, mm, "Honey, I think the question is, what are you going to do?" <laughs> and you guys have always, though, I read you kind of just because he was an actor, mm-hmm. you have an understanding, like you know, maybe a greater understanding of what that sometimes the sacrifices that requires. And for years at a time, you guys will be based on other coasts, right? But we go back and forth all the time. So when I'm in a Broadway show, he'll come in every couple of weeks or, you know, all of that. We work all of that out. Mm -hmm. He loves L.A. And he really wants to be here Mm -hmm. a lot more. 
So I would never say to him, and he's a writer, and he's a wonderful writer. As a matter of fact, we're in the process of pitching a couple of oh, that's great. television things. But I would never say to him, don't you do that thing you love. It's like, how are we going to work out? And he never says to me, don't you do that thing you love. So how are we going to work out the relating while we have these two other things that we also choose mm-hmm. and love? So we've we've we spent a lot of time really managing that and working that out. Went to therapy. I mean, you know, it's like everybody says, oh, you have such a loving relationship and you've lasted so long. It's like, how do you think you last long? I never want people, I never want to pretend to people that we have this perfect relationship. It's not like that. It's like, it's real and it's vibrant and it's alive and it's exciting. And that's the way I want to live. Yeah. You know? So that's right. So I did Ugly Betty. And then they canceled that after two seasons here in New York. And that's when the Broadway stuff started. So Ugly Betty, Other Desert Cities, right. assembled parties. And then I guess this would not have been in New York. I guess you now are back to L.A. for Transparent. I did a Skype call for my audition with Jill Soloway. Probably during During Therese. the assembled parties. Oh, during the assembled parties. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to do this. I want to work with this person. Because you guys... Should related we, on the LGBTQ we thing or totally, what? We had one of those, and I don't mean this in any sort of new agey way. It was one of those cosmic conversations, one of those cosmic connections. I was not prepared six feet under. I knew other things that Jill had done, but I, you know, I did what you do. I researched a lot before I had the conversation, but we were in a sense on the same, not just the same wavelength, but we were talking about things that had a larger context. There was a, the thing about who do you want to be? How do you want to work in the world? How do you want to change the culture? How do you want to change the conversation? And I didn't see the script. I didn't know what it was. It was a recurring part. Mm-hmm. And Shelley Pfefferman. Shelley Pfefferman. America's favorite Yenta. <laughs> America's favorite uh, Yenta. Mother of three complicated children and ex-wife of someone who comes out later in life as trans. That someone, we should say, is someone that you had quite an extensive history with. That's right. We were at the Jeffrey Milwaukee Rep together in 1971. And then again on NBC, right? Yes, that's 20 right. Good 20 good years. with so, him and John Lithgow. So getting to do this show was a real pinnacle for me. And I called Herb after the Skype call with Jill and I said, I think this could bring me back to LA. I want to do this so badly. And when you look at the trajectory of that character, it goes back to what you were saying about who's the boss. That was a woman. And you talk about Me Too, you talk about Mm -hmm. Time's Up, who was sexually assaulted. We learn, I guess, only in season four. That's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you learn the details of of it. You get a sense of it in season three, the end of season three. Right, right. When she does her one-woman show. show. Does her one-woman show. I love it to show and back. Is it just not like the most classic? (laughs) I I have a relative (laughs) who I watch this character and I just say, oh my God, I I love her, but this is, you're playing her. (laughs) I thought you were going to say... She did it her own one woman. No, show. but she could. I mean, she's the same. They are the hair right down to the hair. You know. I hope she's not. Listening. It's just, you know what? I hope she is. Yeah. But she probably doesn't know it's her. No. Would be my, <laughs> That's right. If she's that right? person, she's not right? gonna know she's Shelley. No. No way. 
But the thing about that is that here's a woman who pushed down her voice, who allowed herself not to be who she is and was and follow her bliss. And all of a sudden, this telling again, it's the Karen Woolock, it's the coming out, it's in the standing in the desert, telling the family what had happened to her. I see, though, a connective thread between Shelley and Marilyn Miglin, who we're coming to, because what I'm wondering, watching the two of them, is did they know the truth about their significant other throughout their marriage and chose to accept that, or were they actually oblivious? I think it's a third. I think everyone knows everything. I think all minds are connected in some way, in some form. And I think like I was talking about before, the coping mechanisms that we have to keep ourselves safe and secure. I think we don't either allow ourselves to see, allow ourselves to investigate or to look. I think at some level, Shelley always knew something. Whether she acknowledged it or not is a whole different conversation. Same with Marilyn Miglin. Mm -hmm. Again, a strong, powerful, mm -hmm amazing woman for her time to be out there in business the oh, way yeah. that she was and to have a kind of support of this relating and her life with this person with her husband mm -hmm. and you can see the brilliance of tom rob smith's script is that these people love each other same with shelley and maura mm -hmm. You fall in love with the being. You fall in love with the person. You don't fall in love with the, the sex that they are. You fall in love with that soul, that connection, that person that you, that you deeply feel and know is your, your person, your family. And so the difficulty comes with denial. Mm -hmm. The difficulty comes with having shoved something down for so long that at a certain point it comes up in your face to deal with. And quite frankly, I think Shelley dealt with it beautifully. Mm -hmm. She was the one in the family who was never prejudicial about the dynamic. It's like, if we can be together, I want to be with you. And that was not to be, but the same thing with Marilyn Miglin. Mm -hmm. Well, one last pre-Marilyn Miglin thing is yes. that transparent and ongoing thing still has, must have been in so many ways an emotional roller coaster for everyone involved, but certainly you. You have in those for those four seasons two Emmy nominations. Yes. I think the fact the character has between you and Jill together evolved into a much more multi-dimensional, interesting person. There's the scene. Season two got a lot of attention when yes. you're in the bathtub together yes. with Jeffrey yes. and as yes. Mora and just what that symbolically represented and so many different things we could talk about. But and in the meantime, Jill's had her own. See, I, I'm still learning how to do this. They with are the, in their own process. Right. And that's right. We had Jill on the podcast as this was just coming to the public's knowledge. And. It's just amazing because obviously Mora was essentially inspired by Jill's parent. Mm -hmm. And then in the course of doing the show, Jill's own 
understanding of Jill's self has evolved. And I just, so there's that aspect, which you've been a witness to. And now there's, you know, the, I gather, I can only imagine it must be a upsetting thing to have had what's recently happened with the Jeffrey situation of it all, especially because nobody has a longer history with him than, than you do. And so I just wonder for all these different things that have transpired over the four seasons and onwards, just how you would sum up that experience with the show and just your time that you've been a part of it. I loved every minute of it. Mm -hmm. I still love every minute. And I think you probably read that the wonderful Jen Salky is about to allow us to not just allow us, but want really. And being respectful of Jill and the whole process and time of the show, what that show did for Amazon and what it did for the culture. Yeah. I find it so generous and appropriate for us to finish out something some way. Actually, I mean, I can't even talk about it yet because I don't even know exactly what it's going to be. But well, there I will be. I didn't see the announcement. What there was will that? be. There will be. Jen, there was an article. I think in, mm-hmm. there will be some kind of closure, mm-hmm. and we don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. We're all talking, but nobody knows where we're going to actually land. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the closure. Right. I'm really grateful that we will go back and that there will be something. It's very, very important to me. This show was another one of those things that was transformative for me. And I love all of these people. Mm-hmm. And when you have great writing and great directing and great artists in all aspects, and I mean from the crew to hair, makeup, and wardrobe, you have everybody working together in such an intimately fabulous way. It's very impactful. It has impacted my life tremendously. And I'm so deeply grateful for the experience. And Amazon is an extraordinary place to work. I mean, when Joe Lewis, our executive, I mean, you know Joe, right? Actually, I don't. Oh, my God. He's just, um, he's fantastic. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said for a network that brings you on and talks to you and says, go do what you do best. Well, you guys put them on the map. That was the first well, they did. They had alphas show, and right? betas. They had alphas and betas. The show with John Goodman. They had that show, but this was the show that in really terms of the industry receiving that's embracing right. it for the yeah. industry. The Golden Globe. Right. The fact that this Emmys. and the Emmys and this is a cultural transformation. Mm-hmm. The trans community has been in the shadows for way too long. They are coming out in a most powerful way, and this show was part of the zeitgeist Absolutely. that propelled that forward. All right, here we are, Marilyn Miglin. Yeah. Entrepreneur and wife of Chicago businessman Lee, who, as anyone who has seen the the limited series on FX, The Assassination of Johnny Versace, American Crime Story, will know that Ryan Murphy is a genius. Is a genius. And we won't (laughs) we won't give anything else away about it except to say that, you know, you've mentioned that it was this connection, I think, tracing back to other Desert Cities. That's the right, writer. John Robin Bates. Yeah, that leads you to Ryan Murphy, who, by the way, if Transparent is now winding to an end, the good news is once you're in the Ryan Murphy universe, doesn't seem like you ever get out. So you'll be. Why in, would you want no, to? I would, no, you're you're gonna be. You're the new stock company member, and uh, as long as you want to be. But did you guys even know each other before this? You and Ryan? No, 
No, not in that way. I mean, I, of course, knew all about him. I mean, Sarah Paulson and Lily Rabe and I had done a play together in New York right after I did Wit. We did a play called Colder Than Here for the MCC Theater, okay. which I'm now yeah. on the board of. Yeah. And and so Sarah and Lily and Brian Murray and I were all in this play together. And, of course, Lily Rabe is now doing this new series in New Orleans. And Sarah's doing everything, Ryan Murphy and her own yeah. feature film career and everything. So I knew all about him from, from the gals, but I didn't really know him. I didn't know how wonderful he was. I know that you and Ryan, it makes sense that you that you have so much in common there. And Have you s- seen Pose? Not yet. Oh, my God, yeah. Scott. It's really, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, they're talking about voguing and the yeah. balls. And I remember all of that from the early days of AIDS and the houses and the, and it's all these. Well, I remember Paris is burning, this yes. thing, which I think inspired it. Of so, course. Yeah. I mean that, and Stephen Cannell's isn't, and some of our writers from uh, our lady J who is on oh, right, uh, right, transparent, transparent is on the show now, but I mean this kind of awareness of things that are, again, it goes back to the thing we said in the beginning, how will you be? What will you do that will change the culture, the conversation? You know, we on Transparent took it Mm -hmm. to this place, and now this will take to this place. And then there will be others that will come along that will. And if we're not leaving a powerful legacy for those who come behind us, if we are not setting an example, we'll go around the same bend that we've always gone around. And nothing will change, and the culture will stay the same. But we have an opportunity now in all of the worlds of our artistry. Well, and this was the thing with Johnny Versace. It's not, you know, there might be an assumption that what is the greater significance of a story about a senseless murder of one person, which in fact it's people many did not realize. I've forgotten that it wasn't just the one person, and it wasn't propelled by something vapid in the sense of, obviously it was senseless, but it was driven by something that I will leave it to you to describe because I know it's something that, you know, you had to think about when preparing to play this. You see, what does it mean to be, number one, a young person who is so clearly on the edge in so many ways, knowing that they're gay? and not having a culture that they can walk into where they will be met with open arms and feel safe. Those things, the level of homophobia that was still going on and is still going We're on to this like day. late 90s, right? That's right. Miami. That's right. And so you're dealing with a culture and a, a world that is still dealing with the AIDS crisis in a major way, even though the protease inhibitors have come in in 95, you're still dealing with people and their disdain for people in the gay community and the culture. And we and had Ricky on here a couple of weeks ago, oh, and he was saying that... God, I love him. Ricky Martin, I should say. Oh. I'm not on a first-name basis. <laughs> but that he, who has come out as gay a few years ago, said that the internalized homophobia that That's even it. he felt That's is exactly what if if unaddressed in the wrong mind can explode in the way that it did with Kunanen. That's exactly right. And I think, and I won't speak for Ryan, but I suspect that it was that part of this story that was what was so important to him in doing it. It's not about looking at some 
salacious killer. It's not that's not what this is about. Mm-hmm. And I think the brilliance of Tom Rob Smith looking at it backwards, going backwards yes. from the killing to say, excuse me, for those of you who did not remember, this is what happened. And this is how this person came to end up being where he was and ended up killing Versace, other people and himself. But the story of this couple and the beautiful Mike Farrell. Yeah, from people most closely still associate probably with MASH, but so many things. So many things, and just such a wonderful person to work with. And so when you see, it's an educational piece about what we have lived in and how in some ways we are still living. And if we do not, it is a cautionary tale. If we do not wake up in this world to people that we marginalize and push aside as the other and demean and diminish, these things will happen. And it's like we were talking before when we first came into the room, how things in our world are replays now Mm -hmm. of things that have happened before. And there is that most important phrase, we must remember, we must remember Right. Lest lest we forget or we will we are doomed to repeat the history. And that's I I am concerned about that now. Absolutely. On this project, you appear in episode three and I think episode nine is the final episode. What I think is most interesting about it, it's like a pinch header in baseball for people that like baseball. You have not many opportunities to come in and make a dent. So if you miss it's noticed, but if you connect, it is also very noticed. And in this case, it's amazing what happens in those two episodes in which you appear. And I wonder just as a general broad idea, what you felt your assignment was to communicate in those, I think originally it was just going to be the one, then they bring you back for the, for the kind of closure at the end. That was but, Ryan. Ryan. That yeah. was Ryan. In your mind, what you know, we know there's a script and we, you know, you can, you can read Maureen Orth's book that kind of inspired it and you can or cannot reach out to Marilyn Miglin or which I'd be curious how you approach. But the bottom line is, what did you feel you, in order to succeed, had to do here? The work, the work of getting out of the way and allowing the character to come through me, following the roadmap that Tom Rob Smith had given me. There isn't anything any project that I do now that I consider too little, too small, like that girl from back in the early <laughs> 70s, the girl who said, I will never do a sitcom, I'll never do a right. soap opera, that's not ever where I come from anymore. I come from great respect for the work. I did not speak to Marilyn Miglin. I chose very actively not to. I don't think that they would have wanted me to speak to her. It was about who she is and what she represents. And I also felt that it was inappropriate because the pain of that has got to still be at some level quite raw. So I also didn't want to do a caricature of her. That's often what happens if you're playing people who are, you know, real life people who are still still alive. I mean, I found that with Jeannie White. So you have to be very, very careful and deferential. And so... I had 
two wonderful directors, one who did some of the reshoots, Dan Minahan, and the woman who directed me in the original third episode, which was Gwyneth Horder-Payton, who is a wonderful director. Both of them were terrific. And it's really interesting. I had to work really hard to get out of my way. I had been nominated for an Emmy last year for Transparent. And I said to... I said, listen, if we could not do the big emotional scene with the mirror, with the mirror, where you finally crack. Right. Can we not do that the Monday after the Emmys? Just the night, oh, which is on a Sunday night, right? Right. Oh, God. Oh, God. Can we just not? Or if you have to. And it's like pages right. of dialogue. I mean, right. a lot of stuff had to be cut out of it because right. it was too long. But I said, just, you know, if you could, you know, maybe not give me a really early call. <laughs> It's like that's that thing about what I was telling you. It's like, n- no, this is this is not about you, honey. This is about the production, and this is what we need to do. And you're only in town for a day, so we have to shoot the scene, and this is when we're going to do it. And so, what are you came back after the Emmys that same night or the next morning? And you the next morning, you, next we, morning, you go right to the set. And we do, and that. you have to do the heaviest scene that you're going to have to do yeah. for the whole project. Yeah, but everyone, down to a a person, every person on the crew. Everyone was there supporting me in the most extraordinary ways. It was just remarkable. And also, you know, there are great producers who are on this. Brad Simpson, Nina Jacobson. I mean, you're talking about a great crew. Brian has these people who help you create the character, the hair, the makeup, the wardrobe. They made suits for me in a day. (laughs) Well, it seems, though, like there are some bold decisions that, get made and I can't be sure whether they were on the page or they're you in the moment coming up with something that enhances it but you know down to the tiniest details where when the police are searching your home and you're doing your nails on the table within Bar- the script okay so that's one that's in the script but what about in your episode nine scene at the end where you have this amazing monologue about not all Wives are lucky enough to have a husband who supports their dreams. And I think it was a wonderful monologue. But then that it ends with you kind of closing your eyes, almost like prayerful or something. Was that a direction or is that you saying this is a powerful way to emphasize this? I didn't even think about it. I just, it was what came up. I, it's like, I think if as as we work, as we come to know ourselves and come to do our work, if we get out of the way enough, if we really put ourselves aside, our ego, our everything, and remember, whatever we have, it comes through us. We're channels for the stories that are being told. It is not about you. So when something like that happens, that happens. I don't, I didn't plan that. I don't plan those things. I mean, I had great guidance to it, but I didn't think about that. So... It really means for me that I I have to be out of the way so that something else can come through. And I don't mean a channel like, you know, oh, new age, you know, here's this channel. I don't mean that. I mean, and it's the combination of everything. It's the work that I've done before. It's the work I do on myself. It's the script. It's the director. It's the crew cast script that's the thing that i go back to that i was learning at the o'neill it's the team it's the everybody it's like 
every character I do, it's like Marilyn Miglin. She's everybody's baby. And so is Shelley Pfefferman. Mm -hmm. She's everybody's baby. And then by being everybody's baby, it goes out to the audience and then they become everybody's. And then they take ownership for that and they look at that for themselves and they form their own opinions about it. But I think that's what we're here to do. And I just finished something that I won't talk about it a lot, but you'll see it probably. You know, Facebook is now doing. I was just going to ask you. I Were you? I, yeah, because oh. I saw this announcement. Uh, yeah. You're going to be in a series that is on Facebook Watch, which I I think it might be the first thing that's going to be on There's Facebook Watch. There's one other one that's that's being aired simul simultaneously. It's going to come out at the same time. And I can't remember who did that one. But that, yes, there's it's another It's going to take one. some getting used to to think that, you know, it's almost like saying to somebody like airing on Trader Joe's or right. something. It's just, it's just hard to process. <laughs> well, but, Amazon was the same yes, way. You don't I, think about it like no, that now, do you? Right? right. Right. So what can you tell us about the Facebook series? It's pretty remarkable. There's a bunch of women that are doing this and they are all incredible. You mean behind the scenes? Behind the scenes. It's about beauty pageants in Oklahoma and how they really, how it goes through all of to the Miss America. And it's a thing in our culture that we've never really talked about in this very specific way. Catherine Zeta-Jones is the star of the show and she is truly incredible. It's Ali already been going. Yes. They're in the middle of shooting it. Oh my God. I just got back from Atlanta. I, so like you two days ago, went I flew, and shot your scenes already. Yes, I came. I flew out here to see you. Oh my God, I'm so honored. <laughs> it's true. Well, it's true. You. I mean, I had a couple of other things, other things but I came, I came to see I'm you. I'm very honored. And Alethea Jones, who is a wonderful director. The writing team is amazing. And it's a recurring part. I did six episodes and I just shot it in Atlanta. So and great. Melissa Vargas is the costumer. Also, all these young women all in their 30s, doing this show for Facebook. To see you, Facebook can take all of my information they want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know uh, that you want to go no, no. there, but we're, we're going to make sure you stay protected. No, I'm looking exactly. forward to it. But it's really, it's, it's very, very exciting. Awesome. Well, so as a final question here, you are now up for your fourth Emmy. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Could be statuette number one to go with the daytime ones, the daytime two, <laughs> we've got to have daytime and primetime. You are in the next year, within the year, going to turn 70, if I may say. You may say. Thank you so much. And it seems like there are more and as good, if not better, opportunities than ever at the moment professionally, and you seem very happy personally. So this is going to be a little long-winded, but I have always associated who's the boss with Charles in Charge, because I think they were on ABC at about the same time. Mm -hmm. And Sandra Kearns was the leading lady on that show. She's the exact same age as you. And just in the course of prepping for this, I was looking through a lot of different things. And you go down a rabbit hole sometimes. She, it turns out, left the business because of an illness in the family at the end of the run of Charles in charge. Oh, I didn't know that. I guess her husband had been ailing or something, and oh. then she retired. And what I wonder, that was 25 years ago, roughly, for both of you guys, that those shows came to an end. And there are many things that can happen in any of our lives or careers or whatever. And I just wonder, you know, we've talked about all the wonderful things that have happened. We have talked somewhat as well about some of the sacrifices that these things require whether it's sometimes living apart from your 
significant other, or as you've spoken about in other things that I've read, you know, making a conscious decision. I am going to not have children because I want to Mm -hmm. focus. I don't feel it's fair to them to Mm -hmm. not have my undivided attention Mm -hmm. and you love your career and whatever. You know, it's just interesting to see the different ways. And I, I think the the Sandra Kearns thing is random, but it just made me think about how, you know, you guys were the two stars of primetime hit shows on ABC and you're at this wonderful place right now. And I just wonder, having now spent a chunk of time looking back over all of this amazing life and career, just what you make of it all, that this is where it has led to this particular incredible moment where, you know, the things that you had worried about and felt depressed about and whatever, not only have you come through it, but you've come through it here. Just what's the state of the union right now? That's such a great, wise thing to talk about. It's very much a kind of philosophical note that I love on on which you, you want to end. I'm open. I'm working to stay in every single moment. The past is over. The future is unknown. All I have is this right now with you, for which I am immensely delighted and really happy that we finally got to do this. I knew that it would be as exciting and interesting as it has been. That's the way that I am approaching everything. I didn't know that the Facebook thing was going to come up (laughs) with Catherine Zeta-Jones. I didn't know that this film that I'm about to start Mm -hmm. with these two young gals called Stupid Happy in New York, I'm about to start that. I didn't know that any of this would happen. I didn't know the assassination of Johnny Versace would happen. I didn't know that I would go back to New York and my husband and I would have to figure out our lives together. All I knew was how to make the choices in the moment that reflect how and who I want to be in my own personal life and in the world. So all I can tell you is that that's the only continuum that I know. I won't plan things that it has to happen. That's the girl who said, I'm only going to do feature films and theater. There's a new person every moment in me that lives in the uncertainty and the terror of that and the excitement of that kind of journey and adventure. And so that when I come to the end of my life, I will look back and say, I have no regrets. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
the laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.